In our uh, epistle reading today, Peter's writing a second letter from a Roman prison to churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. This would include, uh, have included the region of Galatia and Cappadocia and a few others. And he and the church are living through the reign of Nero, the emperor uh, best known for blaming a fire that burned a third of Rome on the Christians with no evidence whatsoever that they had caused it, but they were an easy scapegoat for him. And this set off some of the heaviest persecution that Christians would face in the first century, including dipping them in tar, putting them on a pike, and using them for human torches around the city. Uh, tradition holds that Nero was responsible for the deaths of Peter as well as the Apostle Paul and maybe some others. We don't know for sure, but that's what the tradition says. And it's hard to imagine, if you think about it, how Christianity survived that era in particular. Even as you read about the persecution that's happening far from Rome, far from that big city where it was so acute, you know, it was happening at the hands of everyday people, not just tyrannical emperors. So the recipients of Peter's second letter, they are facing this persecution, but they're also facing the other side, so to speak, of the persecution coin. How to avoid it, maybe. They've got the culture in their ears tempting them to avoid the persecution, just lighten up, maybe tuck in, stop with all the ways that their strange beliefs and their practices and their ethics put them in stark and very uneasy contrast to the society around them. And then you add to that, they're dealing with significant discouragement, we see, um, and really even surprised that Jesus has not returned as he said that he would. Peter mentions this, and he feels it too. So he writes, beginning in verse 13, he says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So here's the first thing that I want to point out to you this morning. Peter has been at this a while, and he's keenly aware just how easy it is for all of us, for humans, uh, in the face of hardship to just lose our grasp on what matters most. I mentioned this last week when in Matthew 28, Jesus brings his disciples back to their hometown of Galilee where they first met him and back to a mountain where so many important things were said and done in his ministry. He wanted to bring them back to help them remember. So even with the constraints of prison and an imminent execution, Peter wants these disciples these followers, these churches, to have this letter for the sake of their recall, to tell the story again. It's amazing, too, if you think about it, that we still have this letter, given the context, the environment in which it was written. It's staggering to think about it. Beyond the verses of our brief reading today, Peter is he's going to survey the whole landscape that they're facing in, their, in this region that they're living in and really in the Roman Empire. In the first verse of chapter 2, he warns them that false teachers are an inevitability. It's not just going to be going on out there. It's going to be going on in here, so to speak. They are the ones who are already sowing the very confusion that the church is experiencing, that they feel. Didn't just come out of nowhere. They're being confused by what's being taught or will be taught. 
And then in verses 2 and 3, Peter points out that they almost always, these kinds of teachers, they almost always have an agenda that either justifies sensuality or greed. It's pretty consistent. That's part of how you can tell that it's false teaching. It's the same as it ever was. Sex and money without boundaries and responsibility. They are universally and perennially enticing. That's how you know it. So he's warning them about that, particularly in chapter 2. And then he reminds them that the consequences of confusing freedom with license are never obvious at the outset. But he's pretty clear that they can expect to become enslaved by their so-called freedom. And during the reign of Nero, if you go back and you read history in particular, you may want to read um, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, and you'll find out what, just what society was like under Nero in particular. Nero thought he was a god, and he was actually doing things that even Roman tradition would not have upheld because he thought he was the most important and that nobody's tradition or norms mattered. So it was a really, really both enticing and debauched time that they're living in. So it's clear that they can, they can expect to become enslaved by what's going on around them, by so-called freedom. It reminds me of a story from the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is one of the best titles ever. Somebody loves it. Robert Persig. He tells a story in which uh, monkeys in India are caught with a very simple trap. So they hollow coconuts out, and they chain them to a stake, and a little hole is bored in the coconut, and they pour rice down in it. The hole is just large enough for a monkey's hand to slide in, but not large enough for them to grab the rice into a fist and pull it out. But the monkeys won't let go of the rice. And as Persig puts it, what the monkeys cannot understand is that freedom without rice is more valuable than capture with it. And now maybe you're asking, is is he comparing me to a monkey? (laughs) Absolutely not. I'm comparing us to monkeys. It's just an interesting analogy, but this is what he's after, that, that you can become enslaved by your pursuit of freedom, or so you think. Chapter 3, then, Peter says they can also expect to hear just a never-ending parade of scoffers. They're going to make fun of you, he says. They want to make you feel silly. They want to make you feel uh, superstitious for believing all of these fantasies of a risen and returning king. But he reminds them that they, in, the, in this environment, they're not just trying to hold on through it with white knuckles just to get through this era. No, what are they actually doing in facing this? They are witnessing that God is up to something, that there is a gracious purpose and, and, and patience being displayed to the world and to them for their salvation. They are embodying the heart of God and the waiting It's hard to hear maybe, but Peter says in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That does not sound like encouragement to me. But he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish that all should reach repentance. And I think just as a side note, it's, it's a good thing for us to imagine in the waiting, and even as our psalm talks about this today, like in the waiting, that there is something about that waiting and that wanting and that watching that the Lord's patience is there. 
trying to just somehow connect with the Lord's patience in the middle of, of hardship and something that's going on forever and ever to sense the presence of God in that. Not just the presence, but the character of God who is patient. And as a final admonition, the last two verses read of, of this letter, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And I think that's a word picture of an old fisherman here, an analogy. He says it's this picture of the, of the stormy waves suddenly sweeping them off their feet and dragging them into the sea. Be careful. Don't be carried away with this error and lose your own stability. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what it's like, he's saying. There's a lot flowing. There's a lot that can knock us off of our balance. This is the world as it really is. He's saying, don't be naive. Humanity is still in a bad way. Don't merely stare at the clouds looking for Jesus to return, which the disciples were told in Acts 1.11 when Jesus ascended from their sight. Take care and understand, he's saying, that this struggle, this struggle, the way this is, is the context for growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And we're doing it in an atmosphere of the patience of the Lord and his grace for the world. Here's the second thing. Peter anchors this admonition and this call to remembrance. Again, pulling on his own on his own experience. He's anchoring it in his own vivid memory of something he saw on the mountain of what we call Christ's transfiguration. Certainly Peter, he's got a library of truths that he can open up to them, the truths that Jesus taught him and that the Holy Spirit has kept within him. He has a unique position of authority that he's been granted by Christ. But here he doesn't primarily appeal to those, does he? to his positional authority, or you know, even reminding them in chapter 1 that they share a faith of equal standing, which is staggering to think about. This inverse hierarchy, so to speak, that the church began to put forward, the servanthood that is leadership. But here's what he appeals to. He says, but we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there at 9,000 feet on Mount Hermon as eyewitnesses, and we ourselves heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Because what? Elijah was there. Because Moses was there. Both had their mountain moments. We read about one today, Elijah's. Um, they had their theophanies. They had their revelations of the living God. But now the law and the prophets, Elijah and Moses, they are represented, they are embodied in the men through whom they came, and they are giving credence and attention to Jesus in this moment. Moses and Elijah have come to this mountain to affirm Christ in his brilliance and his glory as the end to which their lives, their messages were always pointing, the sun from which their own rays of light were always shining. They're lending the harmony of history to the melody that only Christ alone can carry the one who was over history, even as he was within it. But then what happens on the mountain? I think this is important. So there's the, the glory, the transfiguration, this amazing theophany, and the voice that comes to affirm Christ, and there's Moses and there's Elijah, but then what happens? And this is important. The voice goes silent. The light fades. 
Those apostles got a glimpse, but they couldn't stay on the mountain and bask in the luminescent glory that was there. They couldn't put up some tents, as Peter had hoped, making a tabernacle for worship. And it's a funny thing, Mark, uh, in his gospel, he was Peter's scribe, and he's telling Peter's story. Mark 9, verse 6 says simply about Peter, he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. So Peter, in the story, becomes the awkward talker. He's just, okay, well, maybe we do this, maybe we do that. Some people freeze in those situations. Some people act. Peter was the latter. It's not a bad idea, given what little he understood, to sort of make these tabernacles, but that wasn't the point. But here's the good news. Now, many decades later, the, uh, it's all really crystal clear to Peter. He becomes a man of action in the church, the man of action that the church would need. And so Peter's telling this story. The power's in the story itself. And in verse 16, he reminds them that what he and the other apostles have told them sounds absolutely nothing like the Greco-Roman myths that are out there, the philosophies of the age swirling all around them. They weren't trying to be clever and persuasive. He's simply saying, here's what happened. So then after the mountaintop experience, sort of the second thing to think about, obviously, what Peter is doing in that moment and how he's handling it. They have to go down the mountain and so does Jesus. Jesus will descend the mountain with Peter, James, and John to do what? He will re-enter the real pain of the world as it really is. The very next thing he does in Mark's gospel is to meet a young boy who is in spiritual torment, demonic torment, and he'll deliver him. Eventually, what the Lord told Peter would happen uh, would soon come true, right? Though Peter himself, he wouldn't hear of it at the time. Jesus, the Son in whom the Father is well pleased, he will be left alone in the agony of anticipation. He'll be betrayed with a kiss. He'll be denied by his closest friends. He'll be falsely accused and unjustly convicted. He'll be beaten mercilessly, mocked as a fake king, spat upon, and then nailed through his hands and feet to a cross where he will asphyxiate, bleed out. And die. Jesus goes down from the mountain for that, for us. From the mountain of majesty to the garden of sorrows, into the clutches of injustice, and on to the hill of horrors. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and these three men that he'd spent three years pouring his life into, the three who saw him on the mountain, they would scatter in fear with all the others despite what they saw and experienced and what now Peter is recalling for the sake of others. And so Peter, whose end is near, he tells the scattered flock, trust it. Trust it. As the waves rise and sweep at your legs, remember what you believed and why you believed it. You believed what we saw and we told you about. You believed what we heard with the help of the Spirit, you saw it and you heard it, just as the prophets and the apostles were carried along by the Spirit, as he says, in the communication of Scripture that's now available to you and to you. Now for Peter, in the dim light of his jail cell, things are as clear and radiant as ever. He can see Jesus face aglow like the sun in radiant white clothing as no one on earth could bleach them. And he wants them and he wants us to see him in this way. Right smack in the middle of their complicated lives. 
and ours. Peter would die. Paul would die. John lived to be an old man in exile and die. Then the letters stopped coming. And somehow, against all odds, the church lived on. How? How is that possible? Because they remembered. Because you remember. Because we remember. We are the distracted. We don't hear the loud voice, much less the still small voice very often. We are the distracted because we are the discouraged and we are the disillusioned. We're the afraid to offend. We're to be left out. We are the idolaters of comfort, the nearsighted, whose everything happening right now is everything happening at all and everything that seems to matter. Until we remember. Together. Until we remember and we forget again and we remember again. This time next year, I or someone here will preach the transfiguration again and again. And in between the whole year, our common life together, this is an, uh, it's an exercise in remembrance, a culture of remembrance. Our worship is remembrance. When the cross comes down the aisle and we follow it, we remember who came into this mad world for us and that we follow him. We remember that he promises to be with us when we gather in here and when we follow him out there. When we walk the gospel out to you and read it, we remember that we didn't get words from God only. We got the Lord himself, the word made flesh. When we receive the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving meal, we remember that the Lord gave his very life for us bungling and blundering, forgetful sliver of humanity we are who are holding out our hands to say, yes, we still desperately need you. We forgot. We remember that only pure love only pure love would suffer and die for all this nonsense that spreads throughout our world, often because of us. Only pure love would give himself to become the living and the dying picture of what our sin does to innocence and what our restlessness does to peace. Lastly, we remember there's a world out there into which we are called, not one that we're just here to survive. All that we remember here together is what the world desperately needs to know. As we live out our mostly mundane lives, not above it all, but right in the middle of it all. We go from this mountain of remembrance quite often right back out there into that valley of sometimes despair, difficulty, and discouragement. But from Jesus, we get way more. From Peter, we get way more than recall. We get Jesus doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. We get more than Jesus doing something for us or us for him or the church for you. We get Jesus himself. Jesus with us. His presence, his power, his abiding assurance that his funeral has shockingly become a feast. And that even horror must and shall yield to hope. As Transfiguration Sunday stands us right here on the precipice of Lent, as it always does, we're moving toward a season of deep and honest remembrance. 
And for some people, this season is a little bit difficult. We're like, why, why do we have to hear this, that we're dust and to dust we shall return? And why, you know, why the long face? Seemingly. It's because it's an important word that's reminding us to turn our hearts again away from sin, to let go of the rice in our hands and turn our lives back to Jesus again. That's the word, but you know what? It's not the final word. It's an important word, but not a final word. The final word sounds something like Peter's opening words of this letter, and I just want to end by reading these to you. He said, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just for a second before I read the rest, imagine that you're them living then. And now, just think about being you living now. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, uh, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, let the word from you dwell richly in our hearts through faith. This guide our hearts and minds as we move from the mountain into this season of Lent. And we're reminded again how desperately we need you and how it's your righteousness that has to be ours. We can never have enough of it. We bless you for that truth and help us to cling to it above all things. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.